Okay, describe to me exactly how you stick your head into the black void. And welcome back to another podcast of the Grognards. I'm Dean Geiken, and sitting to my right... I'm Eric Holly, And to my left... Greg Ziegler. Actually, left and to the rear just a little bit. Because of the orientation of our studio, a little background information, we're in a very small little studio. So sometimes we actually get to look at each other, and sometimes we don't. But that might be for the best. Dean's right ear most of the time. Yeah, yeah. So uh, today's topic is the master of dungeons. And I think the best person to DM this session would be... I don't know. What do you think, Greg? Do you think we should give it to Eric? I kind of wanted to do that. Pick me, pick me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, he's going to cry if well, we don't let him DM well, this session. Eric can do it again. I've been really looking forward to this session. <laughs> I mean. I honestly, um, I have been too because I'm a DM. I'm also a player. But more often than not, I don't get to talk to a lot of other DMs. Um, we were talking a little bit before the podcast, and I was wondering how many out of 10 people, let's say 10, or even 20, how many of them are actually DMs? I don't think it's a whole lot. I mean, more often than not, you hear about people having troubles finding DMs to run their games. That's true. Or, you know, you're new to the game, and so Joe gets picked to be the DM, and he may or may not be any good. And so I think being a DM takes a lot of uh, courage Maybe that's yeah. a, a good word. And to put things in our historical footnote, I always like to refer back to the origins of the game. Dungeons and Dragons are sort of unique in that you had this role of a dungeon master. Um, prior games might have had a referee. Like when you do miniature games, even now, my friends and I, one person would not play the game and would just help keep things moving and maybe uh, adjudicate any rules conflicts. But they didn't come up with the game. They might have came up with a scenario, but they're not actively creating as the game goes on. I don't. I can't think of any other games that do that besides, you know, prior to Dungeons and Dragons. Can, can you guys think of anything that? Um, gosh. No, I think that was not one really. of the uh, revolutionary things about D and D was the creation of this. Yeah, you that know, you actually God that oversaw the game. Right. You had one person who basically, if it wasn't for that person, you were not playing a game that week or that month. Um, so. I think yeah, it, and, it's an interesting phenomenon. And, and that's why we there's always sort of a problem, I think, in finding dungeon masters. The bar is set pretty high for new new people who want a dungeon master. And I think they're more nervous than they need to be, truthfully. I, I it's like pizza. A bad D and D game's still pretty good. A good D and D game is great, right? Um, yep. So today we're gonna talk mm. about this whole role of the dungeon master and cover a whole bunch of stuff. Um but the first thing, Dungeon Master versus Game Master, we've, we've talked about this, right? Well, uh, I, yeah, it comes up. I think that, for me, I always use the term, or I should say the letters, DM. To me, it's just kind of part of my, my, my it's just part of my DNA now. I call anybody who runs a game a DM. I know I'm wrong because I am not always referring to Dungeons & Dragons. Um, and what you were saying earlier, where you had a person who kind of adjudicated, you know, kind of sat off on the sidelines and 
didn't play the game and kind of run the game, that's the game master. And that's becoming more and more, I think, to me, more and more uh, relevant when you play a game. I often do that. I'm, I'm running a game, but I still call myself the DM, and I know it's completely wrong. It's, a, it's a probably a grognard thing. What about you, Greg? Do yeah. you use DM or GM or both? I tend to use GM more than DM, mostly because of my uh, you know experience Your playing everything pedigree. except Dungeons & Dragons. So yeah. if you're not playing a game where you will end up in a dungeon, you have a game master. Um, and other games have different ways. you got Storyteller or uh, you know different systems have different names for it but uh you know we usually use gm i've taken to using dm more lately because i'm playing dungeons and dragons we called it a dm you know back when we were doing palladium but the less of that we played and the more sci-fi games we played it switched around the other way so i think yeah. uh i think just the use depends upon the genre yeah i i pretty much use dm for dungeons and dragons and i use gm for everything else probably um as it should be maybe i'm just lazy <laughs> so now well, we got that out of the way. Um, now we know Dean's lazy. Let's so move on. we've all played a lot of games. Let's start with the the bad. What what do you guys think makes a bad dungeon master? It makes it just a, a game that's you're not having a good time at because of the dungeon master specifically. Okay, you said earlier that a bad game of D and D is still a pretty good time, and a good game of D and D is a great time. I have to beg to differ. I have been in some really bad games where I think the DM just didn't give a shit. Yeah. Um, it. I don't know if that made him a bad DM, but that was a couple of times that was my bad experience. Uh, I think that he was just tired, or maybe he didn't really have anything invested in the actual game that we were doing. It was at a convention. Yeah, I was just going to say, was that at a convention? It was at a convention, but it was not late in the convention. It was fairly early on in the convention. Well, sometimes those 8 a.m. ones are rough. Yeah. And, yeah. and sometimes people are running games just to get into the convention for free, right, to get that free badge. Yeah, they that's, just want to put their sure. hours in. Right. And, and I would agree. There are definitely some, some games like that. And that's a whole other concept, which we're not really going to touch upon in this podcast. But there's this rise of paid dungeon masters, paid game masters. Yeah. Well, and, a and very good friend of mine is doing that, and that's his trip to Gen Con. Yeah. Is he actually getting paid in addition to the badge? Um, I believe he's getting paid in the sense that he's getting his hotel paid well, for. Well, they, Gen Con's done that for a while. Well, you, no, yeah. this is enough. through a company. Yeah. yeah he's not enough. doing enough. He's only doing three sessions. He's not doing enough to get a full badge and a full hotel. This is part of his contract. Hmm. All right. Wow. Um, but outside of that, there's people who are af- actually offering like online games where people will pay, a group of players will get together and pay them to run an online game for them. So like hmm. I said, I don't want to get too far into that. That might right. be a topic for another whole podcast at some point. It's another but, ugly um, moral situation. Okay, there. to answer your question, for me, what makes a bad DM? For me, a bad DM is someone who is probably not really excited about playing the game that they're running for the players. And whether they know the rules or not, they kind of run roughshod over them. And either they're like, oh, yeah, just go ahead. You can do that without even any chance of me failing or succeeding by the roll of a dice. Because, you know, we all like to get together and roll the die um, in the game. And so that for me is if the guy does not have his heart into the game, 
I've been guilty of that myself. I'm tired or whatever. But some people just, they're doing it because they got nothing yeah, better to do or they rules, just were the last person picked. Rules knowledge won't usually sink it by itself. Right. I mean, a lot of DMs play fast and loose with the rules, but everybody still has a great time because that's the kind of game they run. You realize that. Yeah, mm-hmm. You can push past that because a lot of times there's somebody else sitting at the table who knows more than you oh, yeah, about so, the rules. Always. And, um, uh, you know, that's, yeah, that's not a deal breaker is being the rules master. I, you have to be the story master. I also don't like it when the table <laughs> is running the game. Yeah, yeah. Well, table control, that's that's one that is my pet peeve where, you know, things – it doesn't necessarily even just that the players are running a game, but things are just hectic, chaotic. You're not sure what's going on. you got side conversations. The party's split and people are over there, you know, doing whatever. That, that drives me nuts. Yeah, split parties a fast track to things spiraling out of control. Yeah, and um, I do believe that there are a certain group of – DMs or GMs, depending on your campaign or your particular flavor of role-playing game, they just, they're out to kill. Yeah, that's that's my big one. Uh, playing as an enemy of the player. Um, there's a, you know, there's a lot of DMs that play that way, where their job is taking down player. Realistically, if you think about it, it makes no sense. As a DM, if you wanted to kill players, they'd be dead. Yeah, right. I mean, no, that's true. That. <laughs> you could just throw them up against a CR thirty creature at first level, and they're dead. Right. That sphere of annihilation. Bye. And, yeah. <laughs> and a lot of times, I think that comes from DMs sort of getting upset that the players always defeat their creatures. Well, they're supposed to. Yeah. yeah th- exactly. Thank you, Greg. Yeah. There. I mean, that's the nature of the game for me is the players are supposed to succeed. Yeah, when the players fail and then the players die, you suddenly don't have a game anymore. Right. And then on the other side of that too, nobody wants to play with you either. I mean... (laughs) If you're going to spend an hour or two making up a character if you're thorough about it like some people then um <laughs> who would that be eric but, i don't know but <laughs> and, and, and then that character gets bumped off you know if you're going to spend two hours making up a character and then you play for three or four hours and it's dead you know you on the other side of that coin just there does cool. need to be a challenge yes. right and that's yes. i think what differentiates a good dm from a bad dm is that a good dm generally dms with more experience know how to walk that line and make it exciting for the players, make them feel like, oh, my God, we could lose it at any moment, the yet stakes. we're still victorious. The thrill of victory is that much sweeter when you were close to defeat. Yeah, the stakes have to be real. Yeah. Yes, there has to be some real uh, you know, threat or a real chance of your character going belly up for the most part, because if not, you're just kind of going through the motions and I mean, to be honest, you could be doing a whole lot of other things at that point, too. Yeah. Now, the the last one that drives me nuts, and it's, I don't know, a lot of times it's a DM if you're in a home game or whatever, but railroading. And we're going to talk about that in a future podcast as well, because that's a whole thing. But um, can I, can I, I, I found something that uh, in our conversation just recently, what makes a good DM, it sparked me, uh, it sparked my memory of a play called of dice and men i saw it performed live at gen con a couple of years ago 
And I'm hoping to see the movie yeah. that just came out, and it's going to be premiering at Gen Con. But I want to read wow. something. It's one of the last scenes. And uh, to kind of set the tone, it's a group of friends. It's you know set in the modern age. And the DM is struggling to keep his group together because one guy is going to join the army and he's going to go off to Afghanistan. Another uh, couple have a kid. And then another have kind of a, a, a love-hate relationship. And then another guy is just kind of a jerk. Okay? And the game, they're friends, but the game keeps kind of falling apart. And being a DM, and this kind of sums up what being a DM is to me. And I'm going to read this if, if you don't mind. Uh, the character who reads this, he's the DM. His name is John Francis. He says, I think I can mark the moment that I went from being an okay DM to being a really good one. It's when I first realized that's what the DM screen is really for. I used to think it was all for the charts and the stuff on the back so that I could have all of the rules at my fingertips and maybe to hide the map and everything so the players couldn't cheat. And it is, kind of, but it's mostly so that... I can cheat. Like when John Alex tried to pick Jason's pocket, and I rolled to see if anyone saw him. Well, according to the dice, everybody failed that spot check miserably. I rolled like a seven, two threes, and a one. There was no way in hell I was going to let John Alex get away with that, so I cheated. I also know when I went from being a good DM to being a great one. It's when I realized that muffing dice rolls isn't the only way to cheat. That manipulating the players isn't necessarily evil, it's my job. That my players wanted me to run things, they wanted me to play God because they knew I would take care of them. I agree with half of that. In a little <laughs> bit, we're going to talk about fudge and die rolls, yeah. and I have some strong opinions on that. But yeah, I mean, to some, this whole railroading, and again, there's a lot of stuff on that. And by railroading, we mean forcing the players down a single path. Mm -hmm. um, if you play any of the old modules in AD&D, you had to railroad. I mean, players could turn left or right at the intersection, but eventually they'd go both ways, right? They're right. going to clear the dungeon. But they didn't have a choice if they were going to go fight the giant chieftain. I mean, chapter one's fighting giant chieftain. <laughs> if they don't do that, you don't have a module. So to some extent, you have to railroad. But... Um, Beyond the adventure, players should have the freedom to make decisions and to act in a certain way. If they have to defeat a group of bandits, they should have the ability to either sneak into the bandit camp and maybe assassinate the leader or do a full frontal assault or mind control one of the guards. I mean, that's what D&D is about. And um, sometimes DMs will just choose a path for the players and force them down that path. That's railroading, and that's awful. Yeah. Well, railroading is necessary to a certain extent because you have to achieve your um, you know your goals there but a good dm is one that railroads the players and the players have no idea they were just railroaded a bad dm to answer the original question my only bad experiences i've had with dms were ones who were railroading the characters and were upfront about it no you guys can't do that you have to go over here or oh, you know, wow. where, they, where they force you down a path without it seeming as though it, the players have any sort of agency in that and in it, that railroad. You know, and you're you can on a do that as a DM without the players realizing it. Yeah, That's it's, what it's easy, quote referred yeah, to. Yeah, it's right? easy to do if you're a good DM 
to send the players down the path that you want, but when you're when you're the bad DM is the one that says no, you can't do that, or you guys have to do this. No, you just. I have a I have a good friend Dan. We play it's not uh, hard. <laughs> play a lot of D and D together. He plays in a campaign I run for Greg, and he plays a Adventures League game at the Game Store on Wednesday night. And a few months ago, they had a player that was uh, insisted on going off on her own. Not doing anything specific, just going off on her own because role play, her character doesn't get along with everybody else or something crazy. And he was frustrated with that because it slowed the game down. The DM was splitting the time. I think I would be frustrated with that as a player. So, so what I, and that, he was a player. Oh, okay. And, I thought um, he was a DM. And, you know, my thought is that's easy to deal with. As a DM, I ignore that player. I give her five minutes for every hour. You know what? If you have six other people at the table, they're going to get six-sevenths of the time, and you're going to get one-seventh of the time because what, now unless everybody agrees that, okay, we're going to send a rogue ahead, in which case I'll split the time between, you know, yeah. or fast-forward as necessary. But this is just somebody sort of ruining everybody's fun for no apparent reason. It's because um, it's what my character would do. Yeah, it's, you know, that's it, my guy <laughs> syndrome. Yeah. Um, and as a DM, I don't need to do anything with that except be fair. Right, that's and if I really want to be malicious, I can have her start to run into stuff that's over her head because the adventure is designed for seven players, and she's a single player, and she's out by on her own. And pretty quickly, she'll either be dead or realize I need to rejoin the party because I'm in over my head, which is what would really happen. I don't think I ever yeah. so much codified the fact that you know if there's six players, I'm going to give that person one sixth of my time, but I do do that instinctually because when I have a player who does that. They tend to kind of, eventually I find them you know, uh, drawing on their sheet or playing on their phone because, well, they're not part of the game yeah, anymore. Yeah, you know, It's a social game. You need to be social. All right, so that's bad DM stuff. Now, what about good DMs? Now, a lot of the stuff for good DMs is the you know, opposite of what we just talked about for bad DMs, and the first one being technical competence. I appreciate when a DM is not flipping through books constantly and just keeps the game moving. They, they have a solid understanding of the rules, and, and you don't have to worry about that. We can focus on the story. We can focus on the adventure. Right. That's, that's very important, yeah, that you, don't, you want the DM to keep things going, and you but, don't want them to have to look stuff up. You, you know what? If you need to have somebody look something up, have one of the players do it. They're just sitting there with their rule books, usually waiting for an answer. And There's hand in hand with one. that is the DM, while the players expect the DM to know or have a competent understanding of the rules, the DM, at least me, also expects that the players have a very competent understanding yeah. of the rules of either at least their character or the whole game that's, in general. That's a pet peeve yeah. of mine. you got a spellcaster who's casting a spell. I cast this. What's the range? I don't know. Okay, you've been sitting there watching other people do stuff for five minutes. You can't have the book open to the spell you know you're going to cast. I always tell my players, and I play with the same people, be prepared, because some of them don't. They, yeah. they, for one reason or another, they come with the expectation of, okay, I'm ready to play the game. Well, no, you're not, because yeah. you haven't looked at what you want to do or yeah, you make, know, what make, your new level allows you to do. Yeah, make a spell list, buy some spell cards. Uh, there's plenty. Uh, well, now we're talking about players, yeah. not DMs. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Well, you got the rules so, right in so front of you. Here's, <laughs> you know, another one is party expectations. I put this one on the list. Um some groups, and this is the roll, R-O-L-E versus roll, R-O-L-L uh, mechanic that we've talked about in the past. Some groups 
just want to roll dice. They're all about mechanics. They want to min-max builds. They want to roll dice. They're not so much into the story. They're just going to plow through it. Other groups are very much into the story. You have to know what your party is expecting um, and sort of cater to that as a DM. And you sort of get that feel pretty quickly. Um, and sometimes if it's a pickup game or a convention game, it's a, it could be a mixed bag. Right. There's always a couple of people who are just uncomfortable in a new crowd, in a new setting, and they just don't talk. They may be really good role players, but they, they're so nervous. In I, I don't group. see that as a bad thing, because if you've got seven people that all want to be the, the lead dog, yeah. that can also be a little that, hectic yeah. as a DM. It's one less yeah. person you have to worry about. That's true. Um, party expectation. Um, I always hope that my players want to do more role, R-O-L-E, as opposed to R-O-L-L. Yeah. I mean, I enjoy it. As a DM, I think that's more fun. Um, especially if you're world building, because um, mm-hmm. it adds to that, what I call the co-construction of reality. The players are now contributing to the world that you set in motion. Right. Uh, I, I think also um, a DM, you know, uh, a good DM is someone who can tell a story, but not just tell a story, but uh, tell it in a way that is descriptive. Sometimes I find myself becoming exhausted by the mm-hmm. end of a game, and I'm tired of trying to describe what's going on, you know, the the sense, the smells, the, you know, all that stuff. And after a while, I'm like, it's a room. It's 30 by 30. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. where I struggle is uh, I always have to think back when you get tired, when the game starts to run a little long, you start to not include all those descriptions. And I think for the players that's important because – um, the descriptions of the, s- the setting, whether it's a room, a, a forest or whatever, the more you add to that, the more you allow for player agency. That You know, if you walk into the inn and there's three bad guys, okay, that's – I've used that description in the past probably. But that's substantially different than you walk into the inn – there's seven sturdy wooden tables. Each of them have two or three chairs. There's a bar with a large mirror, bottles in front of the mirror. Um, you know, on, on one side, you see a barmaid cowering. Um, there's three hulking, menacing brutes that, um, are, you know, glare at you as you enter. Well, now your players are like, well, I could jump on a table. I could jump behind the bar. You've now enabled them to be, take way more actions than let's roll initiative. I swing at the bad guy. I want to ask Greg a question. Yeah. If in a game your DM kind of was a little on the light side of his descriptive uh, services, how much do you add that to your – I mean, do you add in your own as a player? Because when I get Uh, that – I I will ask, uh, and Eric will attest to this. If we uh, we walk into a bar, you walk into a bar, there's some people in there. Okay, what race are they? Do they look very menacing? I mean, I'm a a player who will – from time to time, force a DM to describe a room because good, if, good for you. if that will inform my actions. Good for you because you know? sometimes I need that as a DM, and, and yeah. I kind of expect and, that. And, and if it doesn't, if it doesn't matter, then you know if the DM says, "Well, you know, there's a there's a, but I think they're humans, but they're just looking the other way." Okay, you know, if, if it doesn't matter, I as a player try to give the DM the opportunity to say. Yeah, that's not really terribly important. You walking through this room to the back where I will describe it in detail is important. I mean, they're not going to say that, but give them the opportunity to do that. And a player who's paying attention and is aware will take cues from the DM that this is not important for me. I do not need to know the barmaid's name. 
which I always ask names, but uh, <laughs> which I hate. I'm bad at that. Um, but we can just move on and get to the important stuff. And I will take it a step further. In improv, which D&D is similar to in some mm-hmm. ways, there's a rule they call the yes or the yes and rule, which is you always accept what the other person has said and then add to it. If you're a player and the DM has described something, let's say the, the example we've been using, you walk into an inn, there's three bad guys there. N- just don't ask what it looks like. Just assume and it's up to then the DM to say, no, 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 that's that's not the way it is. So you say, you know what? I'm going to jump off of a table, swing on the chandelier, and try to tackle one of the bad guys. The DM said nothing about tables, nothing about chandeliers. But now the DM is in a situation, okay, let's do that. Now there's a chandelier. Yeah. One of the advantages to Dungeons and Dragons is we don't have, there's not a picture of the setting in most cases. So you can help construct that setting, right? Which kind of goes in uh, in line with that whole cooperative storytelling because yeah. uh, the players need to add as much atmosphere as the DM does. Or as they need for the DM's story to continue. And that brings us back to, or brings us to what I call the fun, no fun test. As a DM... <laughs> Mm-hmm. I want things to be fun. If a player s- gives me that example, wants to swing off the chandelier, you know, I might be, there's no chandelier in the end, but I'm going to run it through the fun, no fun test. That's fun. Guess what? There's now a chandelier in this end. Okay. Uh, I was wondering where your, what your criteria was for your fun, no fun and test. And that quote you read, I'm going to pick the pocket of that person. Even that, to me, is a fun, no fun test. Mm-hmm. Is it fun for people to notice? Yeah. In my, at least for the DM, <laughs> yeah. it's fun for people to notice because now you force player interaction. Right. There's um, a little bit of a climax. There's a, there's a flex point in your adventure where, you know, you didn't anticipate it, but now there's a little bit of conflict that's going to need resolution. That's what D&D is about. All these are very literary terms. If anybody's written stories or remembers their high school English class, right, that's how adventure should flow in my mind. And as a DM... It's funny you should mention high school English. We hid our D&D books behind our English books and played D&D in English class. Yeah. So that's what I remember of my English class. It seems legit. My vocabulary expanded greatly due to playing Dungeons & Dragons, so I should have been allowed to play in English class. So um, so those are, those are uh, good DMs characteristics. I think there's levels of good DMs, and um, we talked about this because we all went to GaryCon, I experienced some of the best DMing, not that I was DMing, but uh, uh, as a game player at yeah. GaryCon. And I think that, um, man, if I could be as good as those guys, I would. my games yeah. would be How rocking How much does experience count, right? That's, are, are we talking about stuff that could be learned, or are we just talking about hours behind the screen? I, I think there's a certain amount of experience that you have to have to be able to, you know, keep the game moving if you're if you're still new at it the, the there's a specific process with any role-playing game especially dungeons and dragons and and that's something that you have to learn i mean it helps if you were a player and uh you know and then you graduate to being a game master a dungeon master and um <laughs> yeah see i got that problem and uh you know that's that's super helpful but a lot of it in my opinion is is a personality issue and um you know, I, I played a lot of Adventures League 
at GaryCon, and I had some games that were really good, and a lot of, and I had some that were not as good. Killed by squirrels. Killed by squirrels. Well, and that's, and it isn't. Okay, there's a story there that we'll have <clears throat> yeah. to hear We've later. We told that yeah. story I uh, repeatedly. Yeah, that's that's that story's never going away. Um, but. And I hate to say this, that that's my example of a, of a not good game master. Not because he dropped a pile of squirrels on my head and they killed me, um, but he, um, he the he wasn't being overly descriptive. Um, it was uh, he. You know, it failed try, the fun, no fun. It, well, test. it did fail the fun, no fun test. But I guess the point where I was going at the beginning of the, of what I was saying here is that there's a certain amount of theater involved in all of this. And um, he was not a forceful personality. He did not give vivid and entertaining descriptions. He certainly did not, uh, and this is not a deal breaker, I think he didn't do voices. I mean, you know, I'll be honest, game masters who do voices and accents and things for different characters, that adds a lot of flavor to things. He was kind of reading through the book to get us through the right. adventure. And I don't think that was an experience two, issue. It was a personality issue. Two things, just so people are clear. Um, being killed by a pack of squirrels at like 7th or 10th level, that's fun, okay? Yeah. <laughs> being killed by a pack of squirrels at first level as a brand new character, that's no fun. Yeah, you that, have not, That's you what have... fails. So I'm not saying being killed by a pack of squirrels is always no fun. I'm just saying at first level, it's sort of a crappy thing to do. To yeah, a, having to nine hit person. points, you've been playing for 15 or 20 minutes, yeah. and the first thing they do is, yeah. and it was uh, drop, you know, nine squirrels on if you. If you die to a pack and, of squirrels the, at 10th yeah. level, that's a story you're going to tell the rest of your gaming life. Yeah. Um, can we talk about the central nervous system for a while? <laughs> Just a, a segue, because this is this is how I view it. So you have, you know, automated functions like breathing and blinking, things you don't have to consciously think about, and right. then you have things that you do have to think about, in most cases like speaking, unless you're Greg, in which case you can just talk forever. <laughs> I can do that in my sleep. But um, GMing or DMing is very similar. The more that you can automate that stuff, I don't even think about table control anymore. I just do it automatically because I have so much experience behind the screen. Once you know you're familiar with a system, you just want you don't want to have to spend a lot of time thinking about those rules. You, that should be an automated function. That gives you more mental resources to dedicate to the other aspects like storytelling, doing voices, you know, being uh, verbose when you're or just doing your descriptions. And I think that's where experience counts. The more hours behind the screen, the more of those other stuffs have become automated. And you just do them automatically without really thinking about yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, that's my take on, yeah, on how experience counts. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, the only way you're going to do that is to get behind the screen. Right, the only way those things are going to happen. So I encourage everybody who's like, "Oh, I thought about DMing, but I'm not too sure." You know, f- find a group of friends, run a game. You know, that's the only way you're gonna you're gonna get better at DMing. Yeah, I think that uh, those people who do give it a try, um, it either clicks with them or it doesn't in terms of whether it passed the fun or no fun test. And for me, in my experience. They always come back to me as the DM, whether it's because I'm doing something right or I've just got the ideas or I've already spent all the money and all the good stuff. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Well, we have a couple other things to cover here, but um, we have a new segment we want to introduce. Um, and I came up oh, with... We have a new advertiser? Well, it's a, it's not so much an advertiser, no, but you know how like sometimes you have those talk shows? Um, 
Well, you know, I'm a fan of Greyhawk, and uh, we have a new segment we're calling Greyhawk Talk. Um, so I'd like to pass that over to our new segment, and we'll come back in a moment. Welcome to Greyhawk Talk with your host, Drelzna, Vampire Temptress. Greyhawkians, I'm Drelsna, and today we're talking with Melf of Melf's Tensor Cycles. Hello, Drelsna. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, Melf, most people know you for the acid arrow thing you did years ago. I know my friends and I love that spell. <laughs> yes, a bit of a lark in my younger days. Now I'm involved in something much more exhilarating Tensor Cycles. Oh, Tensor Cycles? I've never heard of a Tensor Cycle. What is it? Well, it's the latest in personal transport. My good friend Tensa... Oh, I know Tensa. He tried to stake me once. Uh, Quite right. He is a force for good, and you being a vampire temptress and all. Oh, Melf. You silver-tongued trauma. The things I could do to you. Uh, yes. Well... As I was saying, Tensa designed a spell that creates a magical disc. It follows you, and if you move too far from the disc, over 20 feet, it moves towards you to catch up. At Melf's Tensor Cycle, we have mounted a 21-foot rod with a crank, a seat, and a front wheel onto the disc. Just turn the crank so you're more than 20 feet from the disc, and presto, the disc pushes you forward as it attempts to catch up. Wait a minute. Doesn't it only move a few inches? Uh, No, 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 my dear. The entire assembly is mounted on the disc itself. It never catches up. You always remain over 20 feet away. In order to slow down or stop, you simply crank yourself back to within 20 feet. Isn't that dangerous? It sounds dangerous. Uh, No more dangerous than occasionally teleporting into solid Earth. The acceleration can be fairly abrupt, but we market primarily to adventurers. They love that sort of thing. Our test driver, Beefy the Barbarian, recently set a new land speed record from Greyhawk to Divers. Last we heard, he was passing through the sea of dust and still accelerating. That sounds fabulous. Where can our listeners pick up a tensor cycle? We have dealerships opening across the Flaness, or you can take the teleportation circle to our main showroom in the city of Greyhawk. Well, listeners, that brings us to the end of another episode of Greyhawk Talk. Join us next time when we speak with some guy named Jeremy Crawford and set him straight on why Greyhawk is way better than Forgotten Realms. Okay, tensor cycles, <laughs> the next big thing. I wow. want one. I rode my motorcycle in today, and I think having a tensor cycle would be pretty cool. Would you let players have a tensor cycle in your game? No. Team? No, me neither. <laughs> well, the rule's not clear on how fast it accelerates. So uh, and I don't forget how I came up with the tensor cycle concept, but since the rule's not clear, I would say it was literally breakneck acceleration. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I wouldn't, the reason I wouldn't let my players do it is because I have, I'm sure you do too, I have a very creative and imaginative and kind of think outside the box set of players. Yeah. And oh my gosh, there are so many times when they're about to break the game. And I kind of have to fall back to railroading yeah, because they are... You just have to steer them, gently oh. steer them. The other problem with a tensor cycle, it's a, a 22 and a half foot long yes. chopper. <laughs> you know, that would be tough to steer. Yeah, yeah. you're parking it out inside of the bar. What's going to happen to it while you're in the bar? Yeah, yeah. and how are you going to turn corners in some places? Yeah. yeah. It's yeah that, that unusable in a town. Doesn't go through a dungeon crawl. No. All right, let's get back to talking about uh, dungeon masters because that's what we're here for today. So... You know, Dean and I 
we've DM many years. Greg has played many years under Dungeon Masters. What are some of the pearls of knowledge, things we have learned um, that maybe might be helpful for for new Dungeon Masters? One of that I'd like to throw out there that I see a lot of new DMs. You know, I read a lot of stuff online. Group size. Um, yeah. They start too big. Yes. Yes. Everybody wants to get in on the game. Yeah. They have 17 and... friends that want to play D&D, so we're going to have a 17-player game. They want me to run. Yeah, that's going to last one run. Yeah, and I have a hard time saying no yeah, to people is... who want to play. So, I mean, to me, the the sweet spot for, for Dungeons & Dragons is five players. I agree. I am really comfortable with five. I can handle six and seven comfortably, but five is my magic number. It... Greg, you have some. I would say five or six, yeah. yeah. My I, thing with, with more than that is you're starting to impact the players. If you have five people at the table, everybody gets their chance to do what they want to do. When you start to get to seven, invariably there's a couple people that are going to leave the game feeling like, I, I didn't really get get my time, my, my time in the sun, right? I mean, they, it just seems like you, you can run it. But unless you have a couple players that want to be that guy that or that woman that just sort of hangs in the back and and rolls dice on their initiative and doesn't do a whole lot of interactions, things like that, it's not a good as good a game for the players, in my opinion. Yeah, when there's too many players, um, that that shy person can't get drawn out. Where one of the good thing, great things about any role playing game is that if you have that sort of you know shy personality person and you've only got four or five players. That person has to do something, and it will draw them out and include them in the group, and it'll that's allow a very good point. it'll allow the player and the character to shine. And that's the the, the game master. That's that's what he wants is engagement with the players. Yeah. Uh, when I was at GaryCon, I played that uh, original D and D thing. There were twelve players, yeah, yeah and only about only about four people were really. Run doing things, and everybody mm-hmm. else was. Yeah, I'll do that too. I'll follow yeah. that. It was just, you know, we were we were there to to learn the what, rules. What of, game? What, what module or game, what game was it? Um, I don't remember what the module was exactly. Yeah, it was I a just... it was an original. It was something that uh, Gygax had written for like Gen Con Six or something like that, hmm. and our, our uh, you're playing. Uh, the box white box. Set. That was yeah. a white box white game box, where, yeah. yeah, where there weren't even hardly any rules. Yeah, original D and D was like that though. It wasn't yeah. nearly as complex. They had developed the whole, you know, the whole atmosphere hadn't developed as much. It was much more of a run in, break down door, mm-hmm. kill the monster, take the treasure but, kind of thing. On a practical level, each round was taking thirty minutes. Yeah, because mm-hmm. you know That's you so had funny. to. You know, you had to let all twelve people roll their dice. It was it took forever. We were at this giant table where you could, you know, the waving at the people on the other side. It's, I think that large was, group is messy. It was not a good plan on their part. I was going to say I would not have had fun there. No, I don't think was, so. I, uh, I I hate to. I was looking forward to doing that. I didn't have a great time. I didn't have a terrible time, but I was disappointed in the experience because of the size of the group. And the fact that the game master was fifteen or twenty minutes late showing up, and we didn't start yeah. playing until well, almost an hour into the session. Greg talking about people being late. I'm not sure how I feel about that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> game master has to be there on time. It's his show. <laughs> our rule for our home game is nobody is late until they start showing up later than Greg, and you have to be really late for that to happen. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the other thing I think uh, a lot of new GMs or DMs they want to do world building. Right, they think I'm going to run. I want to create my own world. I advise against that. I was going to say, do you really think that that many people go into the game wanting to build their own world? 
a lot of GM, if you have, if you're the kind of person that wants to GM, I think a, a high proportion of them do, as opposed to the person who has to GM because you need a GM. But in both cases, I think you're way better off staying with what I call canned content. Mm-hmm. Pull a module. Right. Because of that uh, autotomic and non-autotomic thing, you're going to spend a lot of time focusing on looking up rules, trying to maintain table control, trying to tell a coherent story. You're not going to have the luxury of spending f- mental resources on world building on the fly, which you have to do in a home game. right? You have to yeah. create stuff. Right then, because they're gonna players are gonna do things you don't expect. That's the the one given to any D and D game. Yeah, I have used many modules back in uh, the original days of A D and D. I think I've got maybe forty of the original modules, and we probably played at least three fourths of them. Some of them we just never got around to, and I like the way that they're written better than they are now. There's so much detail in the stuff now that, one, I feel a little overwhelmed when I'm reading it, and two, I think it just becomes too much flotsam and jetsam, and it doesn't allow me to give my spin to the game. Yeah, Tomb of Annihilation did that. They did a – there's a thing where you're running it, and then – during one of the adventures, you're, these creatures are supposed to show up that you're supposed to have to fight on occasion. And as a DM, that's annoying. That's one more thing I need to keep track of. It's not like when you walk into this room, you meet this creature. It's this creature you have to roll for continuously through the dungeon. That, to me, as a DM, I, I hate when modules do something like that. Yeah, when I, do, when I used... When I use canned stuff, especially the newer stuff, the stuff that comes out that takes you from level 1 to level 8 or something like that, um, there are many parts of that booklet or that book that I have X'd out as what I consider useless. Yeah, yeah, I see that as uh, that's the Game Master's responsibility. Maybe that's not a good word for it. Prerogative. But his prerogative, yeah. That's well, I doing. think responsibility that, could uh, also be used. Yeah, but uh, that's the Game Master's prerogative that if you're running a canned adventure, uh, you can pick and choose what you want, and that's your option. If if you, if the story's moving ahead and it's headed to where, towards where you want and you're supposed to, uh, you know, throw some, you know, ogres around the corner at the players and it's just going to mess everything up for you just ignore the stinking ogres yeah. there's a uh, quote in a very fun but not well known role playing game system called Kobolds Ate My Baby in the <laughs> I've heard of that you have to it, say that with an Australian accent yeah Kobolds Ate My Baby or, well, that was a horrible Australian yeah. accent yeah. <laughs> anyway I'll work yeah. on that yeah, yeah we'll have to work on that but anyway <laughs> um, in the very beginning of the rule book which is only like 30 pages long it says hey We've already got your money. You do what you want to do with these rules. Yeah, and Gygax said the very essentially yes, the same essentially thing. Essentially the same thing in the original D anD D. You know what? Here's the rules. Do what you want. Like use them more as guidelines as opposed to hard and fast. Yeah, and fifth yep. edition went back to that. You know, yes. rulings, not rules. Mm-hmm. Um, as a GM, you're the moderator. You can make whatever ruling you want. That being said, players enjoy consistency. So if you're going to run things one way, run it that way consistently. Right. And, or and if you're going to Change something up. Let players know ahead of time if at all possible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, that's now, that's very true. Uh, that brings us to, uh, you know, like I said, the I hate when you have to keep track of stuff throughout an adventure 
inspiration points, which we'll talk about again. We have a whole other podcast with what I call the warts of fifth edition. Um, I hate inspiration. Really? <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm supposed to— And you're so to... good about, uh, you know, making sure, well, tossing those coins out at the beginning of the game. Well, Although, but that's you've, been sla- th- you've been slacking off on that here but about the last six months. But that's not the way it's supposed to work, yeah. Greg. And I'm going to contradict myself yeah. in about five minutes here. Um, but I have house rule inspiration. One, I don't care how much inspiration you have. You can have 20 inspiration. If you want to save it up, save it up. I'll make sure you burn it at some point. Oh, yeah. But what I do— I give each player a brass coin at the, or a bronze. I don't know. It's that color. Um, at the beginning of the session, they are allowed to award that to another player during that session and give them inspiration. So you can't use it yourself. Um, and when they award it, they, that player gets a silver coin. And then they collect those silver coins and they use them. When they use up their inspiration, they give them back to me. And if you haven't awarded it by the end of the session, I get it back. You can't s- save up the coins for it. That takes that off of my uh, list of things I have to keep track of during an adventure. Um, I, I don't enjoy that mechanic that I'm supposed to, by the book, rem- remember what each character's flaws, goals, ideals, and whatever the last one is, and reward and inspiration when they do something relating to one of those. That, to me, is an unreasonable expectation on a dungeon master. Well, no. I use inspiration, but in a diff- uh, similar way. But I do not reward because they did something related to their background or their, you know, traits and stuff like that. I do it for really good gaming. Yeah, I, I will still, I will sometimes throw out a coin on my own for something that I consider really cool. Yeah, something spectacular. And I think uh, the way Eric does it, it works out pretty well too, because that gives the the players are sort of policing themselves under his guidance. And yeah, and. Sometimes we'll say, you know, oh, this is a really important role. Has anybody got any inspiration? You know, they can throw Dan. And oh, I, yeah, I we'll must say, Dan. I may steal yeah. that idea. That's a really, I mean, but, Greg seems to be keen on it. I yeah. like that idea yeah. where you can get, well, and I do allow my players to give their inspiration to another player. And I believe that's part of the rules. I think yeah. that's, as written, you yeah. can do that anyway. Yeah. yeah. But More, I like the idea that you have to have two of this to get one of those to be able to use your inspiration, which I think is kind of cool. Yeah. yeah. More, I mean, often than, more often than not, uh, the players at our table, we tend to throw out the inspiration with, you know, that was a spectacular idea. You know, it never occurred to us to, to sneak around to the left and do that. It, it, it saved our asses. Let's, you know, you get a coin for that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's you, more often than not, we pass it out as a reward for either a really good idea or really good role playing, which is what the game master is supposed to do, but he's given it to us to, to police a little better. And I think that works out really good because, again, it, like you said, it takes something off of your plate. And, uh, which and which leads really us helpful. to our next topic, which I want to immediately contradict myself um, house rules. <laughs> Generally, I'm against house rules, uh, especially for new dungeon masters. Yeah, yeah, that's. I, I see that a lot where a new GM will uh, say, "Oh, I'm going to house rule this." Everybody starts with a magic item, and before they know it, they've they've fiddled with the system enough that it, they just break. Everything breaks. Agreed. I can't hit my players or armor class too high. Well, you gave everybody a plus one shield at first level. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. You know. Um, if you're a new DM, it's like those I, those I house the, rules will develop as you play. Exactly, get through the game the way it's intended, or at least the way the designers hope it and to I'd be played. To, I'd hope you have a little more respect for the designers. It's like when I go to the car dealership and I brand, buy my brand new Mustang, and I say, you know what, it's an eight cylinder. I think it's going to work better if I take out one of the spark plugs. <laughs> 
Yeah, no. No. <laughs> like, people have put this system together, this car together, knowing how everything interacts. Yes. And here I am, just some backyard, you know, shade tree mechanic that go, oh, I know better than that engineer that, you know, works at Ford, that team of engineers. So leave leave the system alone until you've got some experience and then start to fiddle with it. Yes, your house rules will come to you eventually as you get more and more used to your players and the game. Yeah, off the top of my head, do you have I think you have pretty much just like two house rules, don't you? The the inspiration rules and uh the crit rules. Yeah, I, I there's those, might be I a miss, couple other ones. Some, those are the only two that I can remember that that come up enough that it's an issue. Yeah. That uh, sometimes throw people off. Yeah, but it's, I, I like to try to follow as closely as possible because I DM in so many different places that if I start <laughs> to get crazy with house rules, I can't remember which, which rules, rules we're using. in which game. Yeah. Um, zero sessions, Dean. Do you use zero sessions? I have begun to use zero sessions, and I like zero sessions now. I think more than, well, to be honest with you, whether I was doing them intentionally or not, I don't know. But it's kind of nice to have that zero session where everybody kind of just gets comfortable with each other and then we kind of set the tone for what it's going to be what yeah. exactly do you mean by zero session so a zero session is yeah that's a good point um a session before your first adventuring session where players get together generate characters in most cases and work out all the details before that first adventuring session so um a lot of people use it for party balance well i'm going to play a wizard what do you what are you going to play like do we need a fighter type um Fifth edition is pretty forgiving when it comes to party party composition, but thank goodness they, because the, the other current thing, one I have is wow. Yeah, the <laughs> other thing they could do is is forge some sort of interconnection between characters, so they could say, "Well, I was going to be an elf too. Maybe we can be related, or maybe we knew each mm-hmm. other and we showed up together." Yeah, tweak your backgrounds to make the party more cohesive. Yes, yeah. which and makes things better for the game master. I do zero sessions also, kind of uh, uh, online with my players. I'll be contacting them as a group. And then they'll be contacting me via some type of online, you know, interface. And that kind of fills up a little bit of the zero session. And so that we're all kind of getting our backgrounds together, kind of our, our the way we're going to handle everything and the way things are going to be run kind of all happens a little bit in-house and also online. Yeah, set, set the ground rules, which the other thing that I cover, zero sessions, rolling dice for stats versus point by. Yeah, that's important. What, what's your opinions on that, guys? I've always liked point by. Um, I have found that point. Go ahead, Greg. I well, didn't mean to point. Write. No, that's uh, just point by is is a is a, a field leveler. Everybody's starting off at the same level. Now, now part of that too is I, you know, my most lengthy gaming experience is with the superhero game champions, and that is the ultimate point by game where that's all about the mechanic of point buy. And they set a level and you distribute points. And that always seemed fair. My my first um, uh, fantasy role playing, my Palladium characters, the game master, he was very much, we're doing this exactly as the rules were. We rolled up the characters. If you rolled up a crappy character, you were going to be stuck with that crappy character. And if you rolled up this amazing character, you were going to be so much better than everybody. And that happened. We had, we had a, always had a couple players that, sucked and then at least one or two players yeah, that were a lot and, better and that's, point by makes everybody it makes it just seems more fair that way and uh you know and it, it also it eliminates any sort of you know possible cheating if, think, if that's an issue which that shouldn't be an issue yeah. but uh, i i'm a huge fan of of point by random random stat generation is just bad yep i think my 
players are more comfortable with point by than rolling because of that off chance you get a really crappy set. But at the same time, and this is something I did in the past, and I still do it a little bit, if you want to go with the full rolling, you know, there's a various numbers of methods of doing that. Here's my kind of take on the whole adventurer that's going to be in the game. You're better than average. And if you've got a crappy set of dice rolls, you're not the guy behind the bar serving up drinks. You're an adventurer. You're kind of like built for this in your DNA. Screw it. It's a game. Reroll it. So that you're not going to be so unhappy with your character that, you know, that you don't want to play him. Yeah, I played in a sci-fi game once where we ran, we did random stat generation. And uh, my character rolled a strength of two, which – and uh, strength uh, had a bearing on what kind of firearm you could handle. Yeah, I, I mean, couldn't shoot anything bigger than a nine millimeter. Like because, a rubber band gun. Yeah, because I got so many minuses to that. And uh, that, that really seriously yeah. hampered my ability to be effective throughout the entire you know yeah. year to uh, yeah, play that game. I mean it informed me in other ways because that character also had you know a maxed out charisma and everything. So I always talked my way through it, but – yeah, that's, I think point, point by, I've gone all point by just because it gets rid of a lot of problems. It gets rid of any possible cheating, which I hate to say it, but, you know, I've run into. Um, and it also levels the playing field. Everybody sort of start, and it, it's frustrating when you have a gimped character or when somebody rolls so well that they dominate, you know, oh, I'm a rogue, but the fighter is better at, at picking locks than I am because they have an ungodly that's decks, you know, something like that. Um yeah. So um, the yeah. other stuff, uh, you yeah, know, that, there's that a lot plays of other into the things. party balance. Yeah. 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 We talked about party balance. There's a lot of other things. Um, well, theater of the mind or miniatures. That's, I want to I want to talk about party balance real yeah. quick. Back in the day, back in the old Grognar days, <laughs> um, you almost needed a fighter, a mage. Uh, uh, a cleric. Yeah, check a ro- you, you had, had a, to have them. You had to have yeah. them. You just kind of had to have them. And I'm actually really pleasantly surprised at how happy I am that I don't need that so much anymore. Yeah. Or I should say the, the party, the players, don't need that so much anymore. Right now, I'm starting this game, and because of their backgrounds and because of whatever else, and I know that this may not make sense to those people who don't understand it, but all of my characters seem to be Batman right now. You know, <laughs> they've all I'm got Batman. this really dark background, and they're that some type of vengeance that they're trying to, you know, <laughs> come up with. Uh, uh, and so they're all like, "We're all Batman." I, I, I the, often, but not a single one of them I is a cleric. Joke that we like my friends and I should sign up at a convention and like all play bards. Right. <laughs> just like oh show up God. at this DM's table. And ironically, We're a party in of fifth bards. edition, that would work. Yeah, it would. I mean, yeah. an it all would. cleric party, an all bar, even an all wizard party. If you had seven <laughs> wizards, what would get close enough to do any <laughs> significant? Deal? And the wizard they were beaten on could stone skin or <laughs> shield or. I mean, like. It's funny that it works that way, but it is sort of amusing. That yeah, I, I suddenly want to make up a party of four characters: John, Paul, George, and Ringo, who are all bards. <laughs> there you go. And uh, yeah, was Ringo really a bard, though? I mean, and, and Colin the Bullet. He was. He was the fun bard. <laughs> okay. You have to be able to play a musical instrument yeah. to be a bard. His though, motivation don't you? is he won't his mom. <laughs> no. Okay, so back to uh, theater of the mind and yeah. miniatures. I. Love the idea of the whole theater of the mind, but as we spoke about earlier, DMs get tired. 
and I really like having a good selection, not that I have a great selection, a good selection of miniatures to throw out on the table to kind of, uh, it just makes things easier for me. It does slow the game up a little bit. It I was does. recently at a convention, and there was actually a competition, um, and you had to get as far through the, a module as you could, and the table that then they could, you had the option doing theater of the mind or miniatures. And we were like, oh, we like miniatures. The table that won did theater of the mind because the combats went so much quicker when the, you know, like, okay, I'm yeah. just going to attack this. Again, it was sort of that, that rule where you just assume I'm close enough to hit it. I'm just going to swing. We're going to do yeah, it. Yeah, you just say, I move to hit or I move to attack or this, that, and the other thing. And, and so you're there. The miniature's there in your head. Why not? Yeah, and it's up to the DM to veto. Yeah. Oh, no, you're too far away to do that. Now, on the uh, the other factor that figures in, if you have a mechanics-oriented table, I mean, in 5th edition, you can have polearm masters. They can attack any creature that moves into their threatened space, which is 10 feet. If right. you're not playing with miniatures, uh, who knows what that is? Yeah, you need to keep track. You yeah. know, as a DM, you just sort of throw it out there every once in a while if you're doing, yeah, okay, you can hit this thing. He's, he's going to run up, and he's close to you, I guess. Um, so yeah. some rules r- sort of assume miniatures. Fourth edition was awful in that regard. Fourth edition, you had to play with miniatures. Yeah. Well, I think Wizards of the Coast was just dying to sell you miniatures. Yes, I think that was a marketing ploy. I think it was just a flaw in fourth edition myself. But, but you know, they did sell a lot of stuff. You mentioned that miniatures help us keep track of stuff. Bookkeeping. Um, keeping track of stuff as a DM. Oh, my gosh. Again, back in the day, um, I used to have just sheets of stuff on my players that I had to keep track of. And then I got smart and I said, no, you keep track of that. Mm -hmm. You keep track of that. But I recently kickstarted something called Stat Trackers. And I want to say, I can't remember who make it. It's like uh, Top Dog, I think is uh, the company, Top Dog. And what it is is this little, almost looks like a a bookmark Mm -hmm. uh, thing that you would put in a book to keep track of where you're reading. But it folds at the top where you have on the outside of the DM screen that person's, uh, the character's name and the player. And then you kind of shuffle it around in terms of initiative. You know, if Joe goes first, he's at the first of the line on the what would be the, the player's uh, right side and this, that, and the other thing. But it also has all of their stats on the back, their AC, their initiative, their perception, their st- all this good stuff. And then they've also got them made up for the critters. Not Is all that critters. That big box because somebody at a convention had one. Yes, of those. yeah, those, yes. I looked at those. And there's some limitations because some are specific to Wizards of the Coast, Dungeons and Dragons, yeah. and so they can't use them. Yeah, they can use the SRD creatures, right? But they give you a crap ton of blank ones that you can fill yeah. in the blank ones. Yeah, those are handy. Um, and that those are so nice because there are many times where I'm like, oh, this creature is going to hit you, and I roll the dice and it misses. But I, it's because I'm forgetting that. That creature has a couple of pluses to hit also. Yeah. And with that stat tracker in front of me, oh, I'm doing a lot more bloody damage to my players than I've the, done in the past. The other thing I do, um, for creature hit points, for damage on creatures, I use a Chessex mat with, dry, or with a wet erase markers. Mm-hmm. I just write the hit point total, the damage they've taken next to the mini. Yes, I've done that too. But a lot of my players are really, they're very sharp. They're really good at keeping track of what critters have what amount of damage yeah, on them. Yeah, but sometimes I'll have the players write it. Mm-hmm. You know, you do that, just add 10 to that. Yeah. If you're writing it out on the board, yeah, that's fine. Now, and then it also gets rid of that problem. How much, which one did we hit? How much, you know, there, there you go. You've done 70 points of damage to that creature. You can see that how bad off that is. 
Who knows? 70 points is a lot of damage. <laughs> yeah. How many DMs make their, uh, not how many, do you as a DM make the players do everything? Like do all the map making, drawing out the map, uh, keeping track of all that type of stuff. I, I usually draw draw stuff myself because it just speeds the game up. Yeah, In you... old D&D, I used to do it the old-fashioned way. 30-foot mm-hmm. hallway, T's to the right. Dead end wall with a door twenty feet down on the left side. You know, I mean. Yeah, I remember gridding out. You know, taking out the graph paper and drawing the map as we went. But the the game master was happening to describe that precisely for me to do that. It's so much easier. This was before we had a battle mat for the for the game master to do it. It's just easier because they're showing you what you see instead of describing it and making you interpret it. That's just. That's. I think that's just an expediency thing. I played a game recently um, at the uh, last Winter War convention here in Champaign where we played a first edition game and the DM wanted us to do it full on old school and I was the map maker and I was keeping track as we went along. I made some mistakes, and it kind of caught us a little bit, but... That's one of the advantages to that. Yeah. Like, you know what? You're not a perfect... Ma- you don't have a bird's-eye view yes. of the dungeon. Like, yes. you're just exactly. drawing it like you're drawing it. And I was I was surprised at how quickly that came back to me in terms of listening and, you know, and interpreting what the DM had said. And, yeah... Things weren't always right, and it's like, wow, there's no way that that hallway can go there. But if it does, maybe there's a secret door there. Yeah, type of thing. It was kind of fun. Yeah. Now, oh, the, cool. you know, you mentioned initiative. I I track initiative on top of the DM screen. Um, the other advantage to that is to so players know when they're coming up, right? They can see ahead. Okay, it's on this person and two two more you know people, and then I'm up, so I can plan my my uh, you know my action when I'm gonna, whatever I'm going to do. Yeah, I learned at GaryCon that that's uh, the the way you do it is actually that's our super common way to do that is yeah. uh, that the game master all they collect is you know AC uh, you can write the initiative passive down perception. you have a card passive perception they either hanging cards up or or making tags for it yeah, but uh, little table tents. I did I've think of one more before. one more house rule I allow average hit points you roll for your hit points when you level and if you don't roll average you take average so you can always get above average. But you get a minimum because it's no fun to level and get one hit. Point. I've done that before. That too. would be me. I've done that before too. And actually, I think my players just take the average now, regardless. Yeah, that's the other way to do it. But yeah. I like to have a little bit of variation in there. So yeah, that- th- yeah. Well, Tell at thirteenth level. I think I've rolled above average twice. <laughs> Um, I think you need a new set of dice, Greg. I always need a new set of dice. So we talked about tracking, you know, and and bookkeeping during a game, but outside of the game campaign tracking if you're running your own campaign world or even a, a canned world that you're sort of making adjustments to like i do i run greyhawk but my greyhawk is not the greyhawk out of the box um it's helpful to have some way to track it uh old school you used to have a three-ring binder and maybe some note cards <laughs> yeah. nothing wrong with that right and and it that's, still works too yeah, that does still work but as the longer the campaign goes i've noticed the uh the harder that gets to maintain Personally, I use a software program called Scrivener. It's actually uh, designed for authors, and it lets me break stuff up. Um, I can include uh, picture files. Um, you know, I, I have a section just for NPCs. I have a section for locations, important events. Um, I like to use that. Uh, if I ever wanted to serialize my D&D campaign, it would be ready to go because the software is actually made for authors. The drawback to that is I'm the only one looking at it. Yeah. 
What do you use to, to track your stuff, Dean? Uh, to be honest with you, I have not gone away from pen and paper. Yeah. I've not. Uh, it it works for me. I'm comfortable with it. I don't. It, I can adjust it as I need it. I don't have to worry about other people's ideas of well, this will work well for you. And I, sometimes I, you know, a lot of the stuff gets in the way with some of that automated stuff. I also enjoy when players keep track of stuff. That is a requirement for me. I am so I got sick and tired of having to keep track of everybody's stuff. I did it primarily because they would show up. Oh, I forgot my player sheet. Oh, gosh darn it. That's uh, your you're, job. You're but, screwed but even, if you don't bring your character sheet. But even world events, like you can almost force that as a DM since we're talking about DMs. If a player's like, oh, yeah, we, we met that one uh, that one priest in that temple. What was their name? I don't know. <laughs> what was their name? <laughs> yes. After a couple of those, players will be like, oh. Or, um, yeah, we picked up that, that necklace, and we were going to sell it. What was the value on that? Five gold. Oh, it was probably more than that. Was it? What do you have written down? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's not a bad thing. There's some yeah. responsibility on both sides of the DM screen. Yeah. Most games I'm in, somebody gets elected or volunteers to be the keeper of the treasure just I, because they're the person who likes to write things down. Yeah, I don't use any electronic stuff. Um, there's a couple of things on my iPhone that I have, but I I find that it just takes away from my attention span to the game, and I think it makes... Yeah, I spend most of the time outside the game. Now, um, I actually have a player, um, Keith, mm-hmm. who gives a little recap. We play every other week, so it's just long enough that people are like, what were we doing last? And he writes enough notes that he gives a little recap for the last episode, and I love that as a DM. That's awesome. And it's all from his player's perspective, too. So it's yeah. just, uh, I went to this, and he's, you know, uh, and thank Cord we did it all. Yeah, he's uh, he writes very entertaining yeah, and if anybody, uh, recaps. The, the, First year we ran that campaign, he was actually putting a version up on EN World. Yeah. Um, if you go into the storyteller section, his name is Poger, P-O-G-R-E, um, and he serialized the first set of adventures that we played at um, in that campaign. He hasn't followed it up for what we would consider season two, I guess. If our listeners have any suggestions, go ahead and let us know. Yeah, we can throw up a link for that if we uh, remember to do that. Oh, yeah, we'll do that. Um, That'd be great. Now, there are a couple other tracking softwares out there. Um, Obsidian Portal, um, that is actually uh, both players and DMs can use it to keep track of stuff, and it actually provides a little bit of a forum that you can communicate back and forth with each other. Um, And then City of Brass, which is more uh, DM-based, keep track of details. There's libraries that you can draw upon. I think there's a cost for that one. So there's other ways to keep track of campaigns, which if you're running a really complex story-driven campaign is almost a requirement. I think we're also forgetting the really easy thing is uh, D&D Beyond allows the DM to have private notes. Yep. And while it's basically just a Word document, you can make it what you want it. Yeah, and you can even fiddle with people's characters, I believe, if you have them yes, set up you in can. a campaign. Yes, you can. Um, Ooh, let's circle. We're getting close to the end. There's a couple other things. Uh, we already talked about rule rulings, not rules. You know, as a DM, keep the keep the game moving. Um, don't focus so much on, on the rules. Get them right if you can. If you can't, I think it's more important to keep the game ruling. But I want to come all the way back to fudging dice rolls uh, because I have some strong opinions on this. Sometimes I think it's necessary. Um, not so much, I don't want the players to fudge a dice roll, but sometimes as a DM, I find it 
absolutely necessary for the fun, no fun test. I disagree. Okay. I um, never fudge. Never, ever. Never. I, you know what? That explains a few things. <laughs> <laughs> well, the vast majority of my ro- yeah. rolls are in front of the DM screen. That is true. Yeah, you you like to roll out on the mat, especially during combat. Yes. Um, the rolls that are behind are things like a rogue's going to stealth, and I need to roll perception to see if somebody sees him because they don't know the outcome of that. Yeah, if you've got modifiers involved, rolling behind the screen allows you to keep those to yourself. Because if you're rolling that out front and it's like, oh, I made it. And they're like, well, no, you didn't. And they're in the mat in their head. They're doing, oh, God, that guy's got like a plus 12. I'm screwed. Yeah. You don't want them to know that. But, but here's why I think it's important to sort of why I have the no fudge policy is that as a DM, I need to be the moderator. And I need to be the impartial moderator. And yes, I am responsible for the fun, no fun test. But there has to be some level of inherent risk. And the reason we use dice in this game is to have randomness. And if I take away that randomness, I've taken away the risk, which means the rewards are not as sweet and the defeats are not as bitter. I will agree with everything you just said. I will. Um, But I also think that sometimes... The story supersedes the die roll. But or the as randomness. a DM, you have the ability to yes Manip- right? manipulate that outcome. My classic example is um, you're in a party. Uh, so this is this is like the stereotypical. I've designed a combat for the party. It was supposed to be a fluff combat. Things take a turn for the worst, and it's gonna be a total party kill. Okay, I don't need to fudge dice rolls. I could have other stuff go on. I could have non-lethal damage. They're going to capture the party, mm-hmm. right? I could have a couple of the creatures that are heavily wounded take off and be like, this ain't worth it. They're still a wizard casting, you know, fireballs. I ain't sticking around. It ain't worth dying over to even out. So there's other things I can do besides fudge dice rolls. I'm still exercising my authority as a DM mm-hmm. to sort of control the flow, the table flow, and and quasi-railroad players because there's a goal I want them to get to. But I still have that that random factor. And all of this points to the fact that there is no right or... Well, there are wrong ways, but there is no one specific way to be a DM. Yeah. I mean, that's the beauty of the game is that everybody plays differently. Some people... There are some cheating DMs out there, and I know it sounds kind of weird as a DM to cheat, but there are some yeah, really, that. really cheating DMs, and I think that I, I agree with you that that hurts the games. That uh, makes it no fun. But as a DM who does fudge on occasion, not a lot, I do it, as that quote was, I do it to kind of take care of the players. And I don't mean to take care of them so they don't die, but take care of them so that the game is what I hope they want it to be. Yeah. Yeah. Different different strokes for different folks. That's right. Um, one last topic. Let's talk about problems at the table because I see a lot of stuff, especially if you read like the D&D forums on Facebook. I have a player who doesn't show <laughs> <Yes>. up. <laughs> yeah, or I have a lot a, of that. I'm playing for 18 years with a couple and now they're getting divorced. You know. Oh, that's ugly. Um, invariably... Okay, you have to draw a line between what happens in-game and what happens out-of-game. And if you have an out-of-game problem, you need to deal with it as an adult. So if you have a, a somebody 
who is being um, you know, aggressive towards other player characters, you need to pull them to the side and say, Dean, the last couple sessions you've been you know, laying into the paladin because you're a, you're a thief and it's really disrupting play. You ne- I need you to tone it down. Uh, you know, I understand you might think that's, that's how your character would do it, but it's not going to work because everybody's here to have a good time. And because of this, this particular behavior you're, you want your character to do, nobody's having a good time. Right. You know? Yeah. And, and I think as an adult, you either say, yeah, you know what? You're right. I, I need to tone it down. Or they say, well, I'm not going to change. To which as a DM, you go, you know what? Then maybe you're not a good yeah. fit for this game. Sometimes the biggest children playing games are the adults. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, I see this so much in online gaming forums and stuff. I'm like, are, is this really what you're like? Are you really that big of a baby or a, a jerk or a, basically an immature idiot? I am shocked that somebody online would be immature well, and, and that's act the like problem. an idiot. Invariably, when someone posts something like that online, the first 20 responses are, oh, that's easy. Just kill their character. Oh, my God. That is the worst thing you could do because now you have taken – so here I am as a DM. I decide Dean's character is causing problems, so I'm going to kill – well, Dean and I have known each other for 20 years, and now we're going to have hard feelings because of some make-believe world. Yeah. The times I've not had any of that in the last, oh, gosh, decade or more or two decades, of fortunately, of my gaming, I did have it when I first started gaming, but – I was a kid, and they were kids. We didn't know what it was like to handle things like an adult. Exactly. But now we're yeah. all grognards. We're all old. Yeah. Yeah. Back when people were showing up to play, you know, back in the 80s, you were showing up really high or, <laughs> uh, you know, or drunk. Not that we would advocate D&D any kind of substance abuse. Drugs and alcohol, thank but, you very much. Uh, it yeah. did. For me, yeah. too, man. I was a straight arrow clean kid because uh, I was trying to spend all my time and efforts on the next game or the next piece of yeah the the most uh the most game master fudging that i experienced was the result of the game master um uh allowing for the errant perhaps chemically altered character to not adversely affect the entire group well well i'm just going to go ahead and throw the switch well it's going to blow up and kill everybody well okay it blows up, but you're the only one caught in the blast. Yeah, you know, you got to do stuff. You got to do stuff like that. Can so. I can I bring up something? I know we're about out of time. We're yeah. going into the extended version That's of the right. grognards here. We always try to keep. There's it so to much about to cover. Hour. It's a big DM. topic, but, and we can't just stop. Um, and this is related to time. I'm going to ask you guys and to our listening audience, what's the longest? gaming session you have played and i don't mean oh we took a break and then we played again on saturday and then we took a break and played again on the what is the longest single session that you have either run or played in and as a dm nowadays man i can't go much more than four hours but i have in the past yeah played Uh, upwards of 10 hours uh, Eric's monthly typically runs six, six hours. Six hours. Six hours, and, and I could I good. could do an eight hour session. Although at the end of six, I'm starting to to feel it more so because I feel more pressure to sort of perform as a DM. And if I start to get you know tired and and things start to just sort of slip through, and I'm looking to just get stuff done, I, I think I'm doing a disservice to the players. Yeah. Back in the day, there were multiple occasions we played for 24 hours straight as teenagers. I mean, and we would, I would have lock ourselves in a basement, 
and just run through and yeah. we'd be you know the somebody's mom would come downstairs and it'd be noon and we'd all be snoozing because we had played from noon to prior day. All I, the way I never got to do that. I yeah. never got to do that. We never got to do that because most of us were farm kids and it was like uh you know the horses or the pigs or whatever need to be taken care of and real life got in the way of yeah. our gaming even as kids. That might be a good challenge for yeah. us to try to do 24 hours of gaming at our advanced ages. That would uh, yeah. I don't that you would know be what? interesting. I Maybe. I'd, we'd be paying for it for, Eric, I'd be paying for it for a week. Why does Eric keep thinking that we're like, you know, these, you know, Barely able to get out of a chair, <laughs> old guys. Nah, that's because I can barely get out of a chair. Twenty-four hours straight, Gene. <laughs> no, one? okay. Um, get me to Gen Con, and then I'll take that challenge on. <laughs> because man, I am so hyped. I could stay up for four days straight. That's true. Plus, you know, you're you got you only got four days to fit it all in, that's and then right. you gotta yeah. gotta recover. It is your best four days. It is your best four days, and that's uh, well. We are kind of wrapping up, but that's one of the things we're going to be talking about. Yeah, future podcast Gen Con and post Gen Con, yeah. and we've got all kinds of great ideas for future podcasts. Yeah. And if any of our listeners have anything they think we would like to cover, please let us know. We're our list. I think we have about fifteen or seventeen things we've covered. About nine of them so far. Um, you know, we will obviously generate more, but if we have some guidance on that, that'd be great. For the, our DMs Guild plug, I'm going to plug one of my own products and. <laughs> Uh, I will not benefit financially from this because I have been charging 99 cents for this product. It was one of the ones I first put up, but I'm actually going to move it to free. Not even pay what you will, just free. Um, And it's a fun little product called uh, Philo's Curiosities and Collectibles. Get Uh, it now, kids, because Eric is a... Oh my gosh, is he a cheapskate? He's not going to give up 99 cents easily. Well, it's only 50 by the time I get my half. But um, <laughs> but I realized early on in my campaign that I like to have a store where players can buy and sell magic, even if it's just little magic. And um, so I came up with this gnomish shop, Philo's Curiosity and Collectibles, and my pride and joy. He's got minor magic items, some of which are, are pretty, pretty silly, silly, like boots of dancing, um, you know, the... Uh, Broom of sweeping. If you lived in a magic world, wouldn't you want a broom that would just sweep your house for you um, automatically? But my favorite one is the 11-foot pole. If anybody <laughs> has seen Spinal Tap, yes. right, with it the speakers that go to 11, <laughs> um, you know, and I gave the same spiel from Philo. Well, what if you come to a 10-and-a-half-foot uh, pit? Your pole only goes to 10. This pole goes to 11. That's one more. That's right. Um, so... It's a fun little product. Uh, you know, it's got these random just I, – I put a lot of effort into coming up with just sort of these quirky random items that you would find in sort of a collectible shop. So it's fun. It's, it's a gonna cool be bunch out of there stuff. for free. Are um, any of them truly offensive? I don't mean offensive in a, you know, uh, I mean offensive in a combat sort of way. Um, you know, with a creative player, they could be. Okay. So they're primarily fun, quirky little things, but they're not intended to, like, you know, really beef your character up. And no, make it, no, no, no. Because in 5th edition, it's sort of, you don't want characters to have a lot of magic. Um, the Boots of Dancing would be really handy in a dance-off with a uh, mega villain. Yeah. Um, I do have boots of, uh, boot laces <laughs> of tying. You put them in boots, and they automatically tie when you issue the command word, which would be good for small children. Chamber pot of disintegration. If you lived in a pre-industrial society, you'd want that. Yeah, that would be yeah. awesome. Instead of casting it out into the, uh, out the window into the main part of the street. Yeah, so uh, coin it indecision. You flip it, it always lands on the edge. 
could be fun. <laughs> it's kind of a cursing, a cursed item. It's I a cursed think. item, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, uh, Philo's P H I L O Curiosities and Collectibles, uh, fun little product. Uh, Greg, why don't you take us out and tell us where people can contact okay, us? Okay, yeah, yeah. If you want to give us some ideas or uh, make some comments, uh, the best place to get a hold of us is on Facebook, where we are the Grognards. Uh, pretty easy to find. Uh, also, you can shoot us a message at Twitter. We'll get back to that. We're at T Grognards. And on Instagram, we are the underscore Grognards. And uh, we also accept standard email messages at gamers at thegrognards.com. And something that we need to mention uh, we are part of the LAG Network, the Lame Ass Gamers Network. Radio, radio Network, Network, the LAG Radio Network. Yes, and that's how you find us on all of these podcast uh, applications and such. But uh, we also are on Patreon now, and we are looking, we're not looking to make money. We're looking to basically pay the bill that gets us the ability to do this. And we're just looking for a buck a month from some of our listeners, if you think it's worth it please visit the patreon account it is lag network and the first four letters are capitalized i don't know if that makes a difference on patreon or not but that's how it is i'm not sure either so it's capital l-a-g-n network on patreon (laughs) (laughs) they'll be able to find yeah i think you can just do a search and it shows up i i I actually did do that and i never capitalized it right right now we have a couple of very uh we're very thankful for those people who are on our Patreon account. It's paying some of the very small bill. Again, we're not looking for a lot, but please help us out. So, for the Grognards, I'm Dean Geiken. I'm Eric Holly. And I'm Greg Ziegler. <laughs>